a bit of a catch-22. If a buyer does really well, they're never going to come back because they don't need to because they've turned their $10 million acquisition into a billion dollars. If they do really badly, they're obviously not going to come back either. It's the ones in the middle that are most likely to come back. The guys buying businesses, like I said, where they have 15% annual return on a good bit, you can do that every single year, raise more money every single year, and it will compound quite nicely. They're the ones who who come back and they're the ones, not, not the ones we care about, that's the wrong word, but they're the ones we focus on making sure they come back. Hello again, my friends, and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen, and no one has figured out how to stop me from creating this podcast. This show explores technology, investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth that will help you and the rest of humanity create a brighter, more abundant future. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Visit ejorgensen.com. Today, my guest is Thomas Smale. He's the founder and CEO of FE International. Thomas is an entrepreneur and an M&A expert, that's mergers and acquisitions. He began building and selling small online companies while he was in college back in the early 2000s and started his M&A firm somewhat by accident back in 2010, just fielding demand from friends and connections. He has since completed more than a billion dollars in market value transactions across SaaS, e-commerce, and content businesses. Today, we talk all about how this business started. It's a professional services firm. It was bootstrapped, zero funds from the ground up, the many nuances of auditing, valuing, and transacting online businesses, and how Thomas thinks about dispelling doubts, about finding a good deal in business marketplaces. You know, Is there alpha left? when a business is listed to sale publicly. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears after one quick message from a sponsor. And that sponsor is the Founders Podcast. It's one of my favorite discoveries of the past few months. David Senra is the host. He's a biography reading machine. It is his obsession. He's read hundreds of entrepreneurs' biographies from all across history. And this podcast is him talking through notes, quotes, and key insights from each book. My favorite aspect is how he manages to connect stories between people like Dr. Seuss, Stephen King, and Charlie Munger. This guy is a human encyclopedia. And if you don't have time to read every single new biography that comes out, David's high quality recaps uh, are absolutely the next best thing. He gets you through a book in about an hour, maybe 90 minutes if it's a big one, and super dense, valuable time full of insight. This is a paid podcast. Uh, You'll get access to the whole back catalog with hundreds of episodes for $99 a year or lifetime access for $2.99. And he puts out a new episode basically every week. I've listened to a dozen episodes now. Just today, I was listening to Stephen King on writing and I learned, I was blown away. He is in the top 25 selling authors of all time, which I didn't realize. 350 million books sold in part because he started at such a young age, learning writing through copy work, working at a newspaper where he learned to be concise. And even if you don't care about writing, David does an amazing job translating some of the lessons he pulls from Stephen King into creative work more generally in entrepreneurship and other entrepreneurs like Dr. Seuss and Steve Jobs. 
Learning through biographies is, is important to me, something two heroes of mine, Charlie Munger and Mark Andreessen both advocate and that I love to do. And the Founders Podcast is an amazing way to get those lessons in a really high signal way. Go to founderspodcast.com to learn more and sign up. You can listen to 30-minute sample episodes or purchase the paid feed. Again, it's founderspodcast.com. The link is in the show notes, but if you just search in any podcast listener, which you probably have, you will find it. It is the white founder script on black background. Thank you so much for supporting our sponsors who help make this show possible. David does incredible work, and I appreciate you checking it out. Another way to support the show, have some fun, and be a part of the action we talk about here is to invest alongside me and my partners in startups and early stage tech companies. I started an early stage investment fund called Rolling Fun this year with two of my most talented and trusted friends. We've been angel investing for years and together managed to invest in a few billion dollar companies and start to really believe in our track record. So we started to open up a fund for investment that lets us accept your money, invest it alongside ours in some of these companies. And we always just seek to invest in the most promising early stage tech companies we can find around the world. If you enjoy this episode, thinking about the future prospects of businesses, how to value these things, how to allocate your capital, you may enjoy learning about that. And I've got podcast episodes with Bo and Al where you can learn more about Rolling Fun. I'm having conversations with investors now. I'm honored that many of you readers and listeners have already joined the fund as co-investors. You can learn more at rolling.fun, which is linked in the show notes below, and accredited investors can join through AngelList today. Please reach out if you have any questions. Now, on with the show. Thomas Smale, the founder and CEO of FE International. Very good to good to meet you. A longtime admirer of your work. Excited to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on, Eric. I, I don't know if you're going to be mad at me for, for doing this, but I, I've gotten a little bit of a self-education from reading a lot of prospectuses from FE International. Is, is this something that you frown upon or encourage? Well, I think when you're, if you're ever thinking about buying a business, I think it's good to research. The worst thing to do is buy the first business you see or look at a thousand prospectuses and never do anything. So there's a balance between researching and going in completely blind. It's, it's kind of like a, it's a beautiful medium because it's like anti-propaganda. It's kind of like, you know, reading an S1 as a value investor or something. You, you're kind of like, this is ideally very straightforward, very organized, very audited sort of information. And so I think it's a, it's a really good, I don't know, reading prospectuses has been an educational hobby for me. I've learned a lot from it. And I think kind of each one kind of gets me closer to feeling comfortable about maybe buying a business in the future or even understanding how to build a business better for sale on my own. Yeah, for sure. There's a concept that I, I think I heard from Naval, and I don't know if he was quoting somebody, but th that a business is just a nexus of contracts. D do you agree with that as a, as a notion? No, I don't think I do. Obviously, a lot of what we do is contract work. So yes, contracts are at the very base of everything we do. But ultimately, I think managing people, I manage well over 100 people now. Contracts aren't really what drives people and what motivates people and what gets people to do what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing. There's a lot of gray area as well, but a contract says one thing. So to, to an extent, our very technical level, yes, I guess it is basically just a nexus of contracts, but in reality, 
contracts alone don't really build a business. You can have the best attorney in the world. That doesn't mean you have a good business and you can have no attorney and very basic contracts or even agreements. And you can have a great business. So I think it's a bit of a balance, but ultimately contracts don't drive people. Most mm-hmm. people sign contracts and don't even remember what they sign. <laughs> or, or understand it in the first place. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Yeah. I, I read it. My read of that was a little more generalized, I think, you know, not just contract, but, you know, agreement or sort of process or organized exchange, maybe. I just thought it was a helpful kind of framework to be like, if someone asked you, what is a business? Like, that's actually kind of a hard, I would have, I would struggle to give a confident definition off the tip of my tongue. Uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. I think I would usually talk about saying that, I don't know how I would define it. I didn't do very well at school, but probably saying <laughs> along the lines of something created, which sells something that makes money, I think would be how I would define it. Okay. It's interesting. I always love stories for people who are like, I didn't do well in school and you would never, ever know based on the business that they built or the success that they've had in real life. So I'm, I'm excited to contrast that concept with, with the story that you're about to share. For sure. So tell, tell us maybe a snapshot of like what FE International looks like right now. Yeah, so super high level. We're an M&A firm, uh, so mergers and acquisitions. We primarily represent SaaS, software, e-commerce, content-based online businesses. And we work on businesses anywhere from uh, low seven-figure valuation up to $100 million valuation. Sometimes we work on larger, sometimes we work on smaller, but that's probably our current sweet spot. At the moment, our head office is in New York. So the majority of our team are there. We also have an office in London. We have an office in Miami. I'm in the Bay Area, so just outside San Francisco. And then some of our team are remote, I guess, as is the way with many companies at the moment. The the team in total are well over 50 people now. All we do is M&A. So 100% of our business is representing sellers. That's how we get paid. Um, We don't do anything else. We have some very minor other revenue streams, but that's the vast majority. I also do some investing myself kind of on the side outside of FE. So we occasionally acquire businesses and things like that. But FE International, the M&A firm is just M&A. Over the last 12 years, we've closed over 1,200 deals, well over a billion dollars in total valuation in there. And a real mix, clients all over the world, all sorts of different business models, different niches, different industries. You name it, we've probably seen it. And, and I don't know much about the the world of M and A firms. What, how would you? What is like the equation that drives that business? You know, maybe some of the economics involved at a high level. Yeah. So all, all of all of what we do is we sell businesses, and then we get paid a commission when we sell the business. We almost never get paid retainers, so we don't get paid anything up front. So we're essentially investing in the process. We have a salaried team. We we have a team in New York, a team in London. Miami, they're not cheap, they're not commission only. So we pay our team to work on the deal. We only get paid if it if it closes. I'd say in the industry, that is quite common. It's definitely becoming more common for as you go more upmarket to pay retainers. So not necessarily hundred percent getting paid on success. But I guess the way I look at it as a business owner is we do a really good job of what we sell, i.e. our service. So we don't necessarily need to get paid if we're not successful. The only time it ever really causes a challenge for us is if sellers get flaky. Mm. So they get halfway through the process and they're like, oh, I've changed my mind, where usually we're out of pocket. But fundamentally, we sell almost every business we take on, assuming the seller hasn't 
change their mind throughout the process so that economics work quite well for us. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I mean, probably halfway through that, I was stressed on your behalf. That's like an entirely like, you know, fixed payroll sort of variable revenue sounds scary. But I guess if you've, you know, you're 10 years into seeing 90% of your funnel convert and you can kind of underwrite that pretty confidently. To an extent, I mean, it definitely as we've got bigger and people get paid more, particularly over the last few years, it definitely is a cash flow management challenge. But that's that's why we work on a real variety of deals. We don't just do $100 million deal every six months. We have a million dollar deal closing today, $5 million deal closing in two weeks. So we consistently have deals closing at different sizes. Yes, a million dollar deal does not pay even pays our office rent for a, a month but at the very least it's that consistent cash flow so a lot of people have always wondered why we haven't stopped doing million dollar deals or eight hundred thousand dollar deals and one of the main reasons is cash flow we can sell those businesses quite quickly relatively easily they they're good experience for the team as they're, they're learning so they have many benefits beyond just top line revenue and is, is there a sense that sort of uh, customers return or recur, or you like do a small transaction with them to get a larger transaction with them later? Is that a part of the dynamic or do people just kind of tend to transact one or two businesses in their lives and go on? Definitely um, at a senior level. So I guess like on my desk and some of the senior people who report directly into me, repeat business is one of our most important metrics. Sometimes a lot of people are just one time. They just only ever buy one business. Maybe they get an SBA loan with a personal guarantee. They lend as, also borrow as much as they can. And that's all they do. Maybe they come back in five years, but that's it. I'd say sellers are quite likely to come back because most people are serial entrepreneurs. They don't just start one business, they'll start multiple. We've had, I think the record I remember in terms of percentage increase was seven years ago someone sold a site with us for around $30,000. And then he sold a business last year for 12 million. So that was quite a big, and he had done a reasonable number of deals in the meantime, but that was his first deal above seven figures. And then he'll see in that case broke eight figures as well. So I've seen that many times on the buyer side, we also have a lot of regular buyers. Buyers are less likely to be, I guess, like loyal to one M&A firm. You'll find a lot of sellers who are like, this is my M&A firm, whether it's us or someone else, this is all the only company I work with. Whereas for buyers, you should objectively, you should be kind of shopping everywhere and seeing what's out there. But there are a lot of buyers who either raise capital or buying is part of their business model. So they might do one deal a year and they've done that every year for the last five years. Some people might buy 10 in a year and then you never hear from them again. So there's a, a, a real mix. So do you think of this mostly as a, like a professional services firm? Like looking at the website, I was kind of like, oh, this is a marketplace. And, and hearing you talk through it, it sounds a, a little bit more like a professional services firm. Yeah, we're 100% professional services. Like our website, I guess, firstly, it's, it's outdated and it doesn't really, it doesn't, it's not a marketplace. You can't, we cannot make any money without physically transacting with the people who come in. So the website is, I wouldn't quite call it just there because it needs to be there. But the vast majority of our communication is done by email and the phone, email outreach and things like that. So the website alone doesn't really show you what's happening behind the scenes. 
and there's not really any automation there. It's really just kind of like an ad, like here's a business request information. And then you're speaking to a real person. You're not going through an automation flow. You're speaking to a real person, probably in our New York or London office and going through from there. So yeah, 100% professional services. I think one thing on our medium term kind of roadmap is to start automating some of the earlier stages of the process. But for now, 100% professional services. I don't see our revenue model changing. Maybe we can leverage technology slightly more efficiently, but that's a slightly separate challenge. Yeah. And, and given that it's professional services, I imagine this was like a bootstrapped business. Did you did you have struggled to kind of manage cash flows or finance this thing as you've grown? I mean, to reach this scale in 10 years is meaningful. <laughs> like, I definitely didn't have any money starting out, no. But since it was just me to start, and then in the very early days when we were getting off the ground, focusing on... We did a bunch of stuff starting out because I was like, I need to make money doing anything. And then I can kind of pay my own rent was number one priority. <laughs> then maybe buying food was number two priority. <laughs> and then it was then it was everything else. In the early days, the team we hired were commission only because we couldn't afford to pay them a salary. And then over time, that's changed. Now the team are primarily compensated with salary and then they get an annual bonus as well. So they are incentivized by what they sell, but the vast majority of the team are primarily paid um, salary. So early days was definitely difficult. We've had to change the business model over time with our team. And ultimately, as, as deals get bigger and more complex, you can't, there are very few people out there who can do those deals who want to work commission only. We're competing against JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, KPMG, PwC for talent, either in the accounting world or the investment banking world. We're not competing against kind of main street business broker or like realtor come business broker who have no real sophistication. They just know how to sell. Because to your point, when you read our prospectuses, they're not what I describe as like a bullshit sales document. We actually put real work into it. And we basically have the balance from my side is we have essentially a team of accountants preparing that document. So it's a, a balance between objectivity and left to their own devices, that would be 100% ob- objective and being also a sales document. <laughs> we are trying to sell, but also trying to be objective and not, there's a, a very gray area between overselling something, misrepresenting it, which is obviously what we don't want to do and being way too objective and not really doing our job, which is selling. Yeah, I, I've read probably a few dozen prospectuses at least by now, and it does not surprise me to hear that they are written by accountants. <laughs> I guess the nature of it is they, they have to be factual. At the very fundamental level, the, the, the one thing we never want to happen is someone to make an offer on a business, get into the due diligence process, and then four weeks in say, oh, your prospectus said X, but I've now discovered Y. And that's just because we've kind of conflated the the truth or we've changed something that we were told to make it sound better ultimately yes that might slow down the amount of time it takes you to get an offer but it means our success rate is extremely high when we do get one because generally there are no issues with how we've represented the business so it's definitely definitely a trade-off and like an ongoing um challenge yeah and it's an interesting i mean the game theory of it is you know for the best for your business to succeed at it at the best over a long time horizon, you have to build this really strong 
trust and brand and reputation with both sides of the marketplace. And so you have to be really careful to like serve them both, I imagine, without without ever putting a thumb on the scale, which has to be has to be really tough. Yeah, for, for sure. And particularly for us, like there's always every year there's a, a new kind of flavor of the week competitor that pops up and they're offering something that we, we know fundamentally cannot be offered. They're like, we'll sell your business for free or we'll sell your business for double the market valuation or sell your business in three days, things like that, which we know fundamentally can't be done. Maybe they can be done in certain market conditions. So maybe it is that they can get buyers to pay them because buyers are particularly desperate for deals in that market and they don't need to charge sellers. Or maybe they can sell under market value and there are people willing to buy in three days, but you can't build a sustainable business doing that. So for me, again, it's a bit of a balance between staying the course and being disciplined, making sure that we're continuing to do what we do. But that means 12 years into the business, we have a steady flow of consistent clients, consistent referrals, and yes, competitors will come and go, but I'm always quite confident that in say three years time, the fancy competitor everyone's talking about would have either gone away or it's not doing as much business. Interesting. Yeah. What, what is your, what is your vision for maybe the long term of FE International? Are you, do you kind of want to increase the density and like quality of your business? Are you trying to sort of continue to scale up? Where do you want to see it in, you know, 10 years or 20 years? So for us, it's primarily continuing to scale up. So continuing to do the deals at the level we're doing right now, but also continuing to move further and further up market. This is an approximation. It's not the exact, but approximately every year, the biggest deal we've closed around doubles from what we've ever done before. So if you go back, say five years ago, we were the biggest deal we'd ever done was maybe think maybe like $5 million. Whereas today we're substantially bigger than that. And that only keeps increasing. So you can continue going up and up market. And the way we look at it is a lot of the deals we work on now, firstly, all of, most of our team now have come from big investment banks or big accounting firms. So we don't lack the talent internally. Often when we're competing or working alongside another bank, we realize often like we're actually better than them. A lot of these big banks are really quite inefficient, particularly on what they would describe as a small deal. So say a $50 million deal, you get our best team. If you go to Goldman Sachs, you get like the interns <laughs> and our best team are significantly better than the Goldman Sachs interns. And we'll take it much more seriously in a, in a deal like that, the MD or the director or whoever it might be at Goldman Sachs might look at the deal once a month for 30 minutes. Whereas you were said, you don't quite have my undivided attention, but I'm definitely involved, definitely looking at it and we're good at what we do. So we're definitely encouraged as we've gone up market by the fact we can, at least service-wise, we can deliver as good or better than the big banks. Does that mean we can always win business from them? No, that's a challenge because to your point, we've been around 10, 12 years, which is a long time in this industry, but the big investment banks have been around 100 years. So yeah. that's very difficult to catch up with. Yeah, yeah. Nobody got fired for hiring Goldman Sachs. Is the, the, it, yeah. it, 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 exactly. So how did, you, how did you come to start this business? Were you, were you operating in the space independently before this? So I was at college at the time and I was buying and selling small websites and domains myself. So talking like 
$100, $50. I, I guess what you call it back then was like flipping. I'd sell it for 200 Then I'd take my $200 on my credit card, buy something, sell it in a month for $1,000. So I guess I learned the transactional side of selling. And selling doesn't really change whether you're selling something for $10, $1,000, $100 million. The principles are essentially the same with slightly different sophistication. And then I learned the online space. And at the time, there were not really M&A firms representing e-commerce, software, online businesses. If you had a, a, a restaurant or a gas station or something like that, there are lots of firms that could have represented you now and 10 years ago. But if you had an e-commerce business making 10 million a year or a SaaS business, yes, you could call those firms, but they wouldn't have a clue what they're doing. So then kind of fell into it by accident because I was buying and selling myself. I then wrote a book about what I was doing the year I graduated because I needed to make some money, basically. And then off the back of that, people were like, hey, Thomas, you, you were buying and selling yourself. Can you sell for me? And to my point about I didn't do well at school, I do technically have a business degree, but I don't think it really occurred to me that that was M&A. I was like, yeah, I'll help you. Just pay me if it, pay me if it works was essentially the premise. And then it did work. And then we've got loads of word of mouth in the early days. We didn't even, people laugh at our website now and say it sucks. We didn't even have a website <laughs> for our first two years. We just had an email address and it would email me and the team and we would handle it like in private. A lot of what we do is like very confidential, has to be behind closed doors. We're not, we're not publicizing the name of a business we're representing. We're doing all in, in private. So that's been kind of the core of our business from day one. And then it really snowballed behind the scenes. And then the, the I guess the industry has exploded in size more service providers, competitors, marketplaces have popped up. So there's a lot more knowledge in the space. Years ago, podcasts like yours, for example, did, wouldn't really exist or you wouldn't really want to talk to me because you'd be like, oh, I've never heard of you guys. Like, Who's even buying online businesses? Whereas today, it's a much more compelling kind of pitch for me because like, there's lots of people in the industry, the average 21 year old graduating college today does not dream of opening a restaurant or well, maybe they do but they're launching an app or a online business or they're doing something in like crypto or whatever it might be and that's well we don't do much in the crypto space but that's really what we do so we pick up a lot of people very early on who are i guess similar to yourself You're like well i'm window shopping looking at businesses seeing what i might want to buy and obviously there's a balance for us. We don't let people look at 300 businesses and never make an offer. But if people just want to like learn while they're raising capital or whatever, that's fine. As long as you're not wasting everyone's time. Um, yes, that's kind of really where we are at the moment. It's kind of snowballed in the early days. And then today, the, the majority of our good business, at least, is still word of mouth or a form of word of mouth anyway. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. Because I was going to, like, there are so many... There's almost a business brokerage industry for each industry. You know, I was going to ask you about the business brokerage space, but that doesn't even really seem like the right way to slice it now that you've kind of laid that out. And I think yeah, it's we, we definitely yeah definitely got ourselves away from traditional business broker. I say business brokers, particularly in the US. Right? So I'm from the UK originally. I now live in the Bay Area. Business brokers in the US have a terrible reputation. And that's usually because they're not very good and they 
generally come from a real estate background. So you know about the real estate. So traditionally, businesses, because they were bricks, bricks and mortar, real estate was a big part of the transaction. So you had to have a real estate license to sell a business. That's what business brokers are doing. So basically, they knew how to sell the real estate. And then the business was like, oh, yeah, this is a shop. It makes a million a year. And then the owner takes home 100000 But check out the real estate. Whereas in our space, so, I mean, sometimes there are leases if it's an e-commerce business, but 95% of the time, there's no real estate. So you have to be specialized. I don't know anything about real estate. I think I own a house. That's about the extent of my knowledge in the real estate space. <laughs> so you, you wouldn't call me and you definitely shouldn't call me if you want to sell a, a retail store because I wouldn't really know where to start. But just the same as a traditional business broker wouldn't have a clue how to sell an e-commerce business. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the way you fell into it is interesting, but the, you couldn't have picked better timing and a better niche because I think the people who are interested in buying you know, a digital business. So SaaS, e-commerce, um, content are, I think the ones that you are kind of highlight are just so different and the dynamics are so different. They're, they're maybe much more scalably managed. You can buy them from anywhere on earth, if not the country, you can manage them from anywhere. You can manage multiple of them in parallel. It's a totally different skill set in many cases, you know, you, plenty of engineers buying these that certainly wouldn't be buying a car wash business or a laundromat or something like that. So I, you've, you've, you know, yeah, golf claps for your, your timing and your, in your, your context and like the way you oriented yourself to the tailwinds of the market is, is amazing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it definitely also came out of the back. So I graduated into the last recession, or not, te- I don't know if it's technically the last recession, but graduated in 2010, coming out of the back of a recession. A lot of people were looking for other investment classes. So I'd say now you would consider like online businesses almost as a mainstream investment class that people know about. And everyone now knows about that. The biggest public stocks are now things like Netflix, or maybe not as of today, but companies <laughs> like Netflix, Dropbox, Microsoft, and like companies like Microsoft have transitioned to a SaaS model for most of their business. Like people now get what SaaS is because they're like, oh, I have to pay a subscription to Microsoft Word now. Whereas when I was a kid, you'd buy like the CD and it'd be like $100 and then when they upgraded it, I had to go buy another CD and all, all of that. But now it's all, all subscription, all cloud. Everyone now knows what SaaS is. So if you say, hey, we're selling a SaaS business, maybe they don't understand what the word SaaS is, but they will understand the concept of paying a monthly subscription to get access to a thing, whether that's software or otherwise. I, I took a stab at the personas there in my last rant, but I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth there. So how correct is that as a representative? Like who are the buyers and who are the sellers? Who, who are like the people behind these businesses and these listings that you've got? So say that the buyers generally fall into, I would say they generally fall into three very broad categories. One would be like an individual investor. So somebody who's either made a bunch of money themselves. Maybe they have a job and they want a side business. Maybe they have a job and they want to buy a business and quit their job. Maybe they've already quit their job and they want to buy a business. Generally speaking, they will either have their own money or they'll take out a loan to buy a business. There's still relatively limited options to raise external financing to acquire online businesses, but there's definitely becoming more options. So individual options, individual investors, first group. Second group are some form of strategic buyer. And everyone thinks their business is going to sell to a strategic (laughs) buyer, but the, the reality is strategic can mean many different things. Strategic can just mean 
they've raised money to buy a business like yours. So their strategy is buying businesses. Does that mean that what you would define, what most people would think is a strategic buyer? No, but is it part of their strategy? Yes. So I think strategic buyers is a very broad answer, but they're usually, so strategic buyers in this context would be someone or a company that already owns a business in an industry and they want to buy something complementary. And then the final group, and there's always overlap between these three groups as well. The final group is funds, investment funds, institutional buyers who have raised capital, which is not their own, to acquire businesses. So whether they have a fund and they just have US accredited investors, or maybe they have raised money from, they've raised debt to acquire businesses, whatever it might be. Lots and lots of different ways to do that. But that's generally the third group. And then on the flip side, sellers are a much wider range of people. Some of them are kind of stay-at-home mum who has never really worked before and they've launched a blog about cooking and it now makes $50,000 a month and they, they sell it and they're exceptionally successful. One of our most successful clients, I remember, she lived in basically the middle of nowhere in the US. Had ne- I, think, I don't think she'd ever got paid more than like 30000 a year. She launched like one product from home. Long story short, built that business up in like three or four years, sold it for about 20 million. <laughs> um, but if, if you met her, you would, you would never know. She was exceptionally smart, but she was not like brash. She's not on social media since the sale closed a couple of years ago. You, you would have literally no clue that, that she did that. So you get a lot of people like that. Then you get the opposite. You get, also get kind of, kind of traditional graduated with an MBA have launched a really technical business, some other people in their MBA class. And then, yeah, so lots of people in between who want to launch a business of American dream, or maybe they're outside the US as well. We have clients all over the world. Maybe they've built up a service business around something they know about. Maybe they've launched a product in an industry they know. Maybe they've partnered up with a friend to build a business. Maybe it's kind of an ex-coworker or something like that. We have a, a very broad mix of sellers who come from all sorts of backgrounds. So like I said, that could be the stay-at-home mom who no one would ever believe could launch a successful business. But often they're, they're the best business owners because your, your first question about, is it a nexus of contracts? They're like, well, uh, no, I, I just produce content about the stuff I'm cooking at home. And then I share it on social media and people like it. And because it's so genuine, pe- people with social media in general, people love to share like real things that feel genuine from a real person. So often the best business people don't mean to be good business people because they're just producing something good. They're like, hey, here's this recipe. It's great. You should know about it. I'm going to share it. And then later on, they figure out how to monetize it. Whereas the MBA is like, oh, okay, the first thing I need is a, a trademark for the name of my business. And then I'm going to patent the way we present a recipe on the page. And then I'm going to raise funding because we definitely need investors to do social media. Whereas uh, the stay-at-home mum blogger has already written the content and they're already making money by the time the MBAs finish their PowerPoint deck. <laughs> so lots of different, lots of different ways you can do it. N- not they're not necessarily right or wrong, but we, we've seen I've seen everything. So how do you, as an investor, I mean, you got, you're really in the catbird seat, uh, which I know is a term, but I still don't really know why 
that is a truism. Anyway, I, I don't know, like, how do you look at that variety of businesses and decide, you know, as an individual, what to, what to invest in or, or what to buy as a company? Do you have a preference for one of those types? Yes. I mean, the, the reason we buy, and we keep it very separate, so we try not to overlap and we only really buy one or two businesses per year. Firstly, the reason I like doing that is so I kind of fully understand the process. I'm not just an advisor who doesn't do it myself. I, don't, I think there's nothing worse than someone advising how to do something if they've never done it themselves. So I, and secondly, I guess I'm fortunate as the business has grown financially, I've done better and better, but I don't know anything about anything other than what I do. So if I have a million dollars, do I buy some real estate or do I buy a business that I kind of know about and understand? So that's always the way I've looked at it. And then primarily, I mean, I'm CEO. I, I'm very busy. I work all the time. I don't really stop. So I don't have time. So whenever we buy anything, and I buy with my business partner primarily, we, and sometimes we have investors involved, we look for something where we can bring in a manager or someone to run it. So our time involvement is as close to zero as is possible. And generally our only involvement is checking in with the manager once a week for one-on-one. That's usually the extent of my involvement. But I don't really do a huge amount of passive investing. I guess I'm still young enough and don't quite have enough resource where I still have to be hands-on and active. We're not buying like, it's not like buying a blue chip stock and just getting dividends. Like running a business, you do actually have to run it. So you have to be good at, if you want it to be hands-off as an investment, relatively, you still have to hire a good manager and you still have to manage a manager. You can't just hire a manager, leave them to it. I think there's a lot of, uh, necessarily called misrepresentation, but there's a lot of overly simplified views of what it's like to run a business on social media where people are like, yeah, buy a business, no money out of pocket, hire a manager, it's completely passive. Like that's not really how it works. Like ultimately, if there's a problem with the business and you can't make payroll, you're the one that's paying that out of pocket. If there's a problem with the manager and the manager quits on Thanksgiving, you are the one who's working on Thanksgiving. There's no one else that's going to help you. So when it, when it's good, it's really good. But when it's bad, it's, it's really bad. I think a lot of people don't realize like how bad it can get. So you kind of have to be, know what you're getting yourself in for. Hence why I like investing in the space because I already know it and I do it day to day anyway. And I have a lot of like contacts and resources already. Whereas if you said to me, Hey, you just bought an apartment building and like the yard <laughs> needs, fi- the yard needs fixing. Who'd you call? I have no idea. I just go on Google like everyone else. And it's a, it's a guess. So you said you, if you buy one a year, um, that made me wonder what the denominator is. So is, is FE international doing like, 20 a year or 500 a year? Like, I don't even have a guess at the order of magnitude, really. Uh, we're generally over 100 per year. So generally we do about two deals a week. Can be higher than that, can be lower. I think in the region of maybe 150 l- last year. So yes, it's, it's probably about 1% of our total deal volume is is me involved. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I think your your point is well made on the like, you know, there's a lot of oversimplification and there's different, there's very different types of businesses, right? There's like it, I, the ones I tend to look at and snoop around at are like the very small, like how can you buy, you know, five or $10,000 a month in income? 
And those are usually people pitching like super low owner involvement. You know, uh, the, I answer tickets once a, once a month for one hour and that's it. And otherwise I just collect the money. And, and then there's like, you know, the next step up from that is, hey, it's a full-time income, but it's full-time work to manage this business and the risk involved. And then there's kind of what you were talking about, which is like, it is big enough to support its own manager salaried and, and someone to kind of shield the owner from the day-to-day work of the business, which is probably the ideal, but it certainly comes with, you know, you got to be able to find all of the capital because that business is inherently going to be bigger. But time, you know, the perspectives that I read where it's like, you know, the owner spends five hours a month on this business. I always have a hard time believing that. And it seems like one of the parts that's particularly difficult to represent honestly, like are, are those owners just being crazy optimistic? Is Are these businesses way more common than I can imagine? Like, how, how, and how do you look at those? How do you audit that? claim yeah so so firstly it probably is the most commonly misrepresented claim because to your point it's very difficult to verify that said there are definitely business owners who do essentially nothing every month because they have a reliable manager because i think in any business you can be i choose to be hands-on with everything i personally invest in but you can be hands-off i think and maybe this is just me being a micromanager but if you're hands-on, I think you're generally going to have better success, but that doesn't mean you can be hands-off and the business will still do fine. I just think it does better with involvement. What I think one thing that a lot of sellers do prior to selling is they significantly ramp their time down. They might have worked 80 hours a week for 10 years, and then the six months before selling, they're like, oh, I don't really want to do this anymore. Then they actually start working five hours a week. And they'll say, oh yeah, I work five hours a week on the business, which is technically true today, but was not necessarily true in the past. If, if I really wanted to, with, with FE, for example, I could hire a CEO to replace me and I could check in once a week or maybe never or almost never and still make a bunch of money. If I was then selling the business, I could say, I do nothing. There's a management team in place. That's very possible. So it definitely happens. I won't go into our exact audit process of how we do it because how we verify even because what sellers like to, we ask, I guess the short answer is we ask questions in such a way that sellers give us the correct answer without realizing what we're actually asking them. Because if people, if you say how much time you're spending on the business and they say five hours a week and you're like, Oh, what are you doing? And they're like, Oh, I just like, I just do social media. And they're like, how much time are you spending on social media? And they're like, oh, five, they're going to say five hours a week. So we'll ask them kind of like what, what they're doing, like how much, how many lines of code did you write? And while we're not necessarily like, how long does a line of code to take to write 10 seconds or 10 days? Like that's, that's very broad, but there are definitely signals you can look at to figure out how much time someone is, is spending. Like, do they have an internal Slack channel? Are they checking in with their team every day being like, Hey guys, great day. In that case, yes, they're probably not working 30 minutes a day. Yeah, so the things we do, I'd say it is difficult. We generally are on the side of caution. So we'll overestimate. And a lot of times sellers will get not frustrated with us, but they'll be like, oh, I'm, last week I spent two hours. I want to say two hours. And we'll say, no, look, the, the spirit of it is it's supposed to be the average amount of time you spend, not not the lowest week you've ever spent in the history of the business. It's got to be kind of a fair balance. (laughs) But I'd say privately, 
lots of people sell businesses and we see this a lot where we say no to a business because we say, look, no one's going to buy this business because you've got two owners working full time and you're barely even breaking even paying yourselves 50,000 between you. What people will then do is unfortunately for the industry, there are lots of marketplaces out there where you kind of sell yourself commission free, that kind of thing. And you can kind of say whatever you want. And it's, if you really want to, it's relatively easy to misrepresent your financials because you can have like a different company paying the expenses. So you could pay, for example, let's say you have a content business and you have an SEO agency and you say, oh no, all of the, the links are organic. You could quite easily have a, a separate entity paying a SEO firm 50K a month for that work. And it's very difficult to prove that that work is, is happening. So at a very fundamental level, like a big part of what we do is just audit. Like that's, it's, it's boring and it's mostly accounting work, but we'll never list anything unless we're confident in the seller's claims around what they're doing and also their financials. And that's also to your point, one of the advantages of having a good reputation, we're not a fly by night M and A firm. If you really want to go kind of misrepresent a business and screw people over, we're not really the kind of company you would call because we're going to figure it out and we're going to say no. You go to the inexperienced broker who doesn't have any other deals and they're desperate to win anything and they'll take anything on. So that's one of the challenges with the industry. Like if you're trying to break in today, all these kind of new brokers doing it for free or whatever it might be or lowest commissions, like it doesn't actually work fundamentally. Yeah, that that is a very interesting comparison right i mean like that that one of the part of your value proposition is the auditing and the guarantee and like maybe some quality floor because your reputation is at least somewhat intertwined with the quality and honesty of the listing from the buyer's point of view right so what I, it's it's interesting to hear you talk through this because as i read a prospectus i'm always imagining the seller basically answering the same question that I'm reading. It's like, how many hours did you spend on the business on an average week? And then being like, mm, how few hours can I get away with saying two? And it's it's cool to hear like the actual process behind the creation of that, that you're, you're trying to approach that as honestly as you can, even if the seller is, <laughs> even if like a potentially adversarial like relationship with the seller, trying to sort of manipulate the process to merchandise their business the very best that they can yeah i think ultimately the way we approach it is like hey you've hired us for a reason like our advice is being truthful is the best approach we will then position it in a good way so everyone knows starting out a business yeah you probably worked 80 hours a week there's almost no business owner who starting out did not work those kind of hours yep like and of them making let's say they build an eight-figure business I, I think you'd struggle to find anyone Yes, can you build a business that makes 20,000 a month working five hours a week? Yes, but you're not going to get to eight figures working five hours a week to start with. I'm not smart enough to do that. Maybe it's possible, but I don't know how. But that doesn't mean that they can't buy a business that is built that takes only that much time to maintain, right? Which is a huge distinction. For, for sure, yeah. But then I guess in that case, you're paying for the work that the mm -hmm. seller has done in the first place to get there. Right. And then the challenge is very different. There's a very big difference between launching a business and getting off the ground and buying a business and managing it. Like I, when I started out, I was like that very traditional ADHD entrepreneur. I would have been 
a terrible manager, didn't have a clue what I was doing. So the thought of like now investing and then managing managers essentially would be the complete opposite of what you would think I'm, I'm good at. But now I'm actually quite good at that. And if you say to me, hey, Thomas, come up with an idea to launch a new business, what would you do? Like, what would you do if you sold FE International tomorrow? Honestly, I, I don't know if I would know. I, I think people like change over time and I think you can mature over time. And I think for some people, for some people buying a business is the only thing that makes sense for some people launching a business is the only thing that makes sense. I think there are very few people who can do both effectively. Maybe there are some examples, but I, I can't really think of that many that I've seen that are really good on a consistent basis of creating, but also managing because they're fundamentally different, different kind of skills at scale anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so to follow on with kind of what you're saying about the, you know, how you construct these processes and how you turn away businesses that you don't feel are actually sellable, saleable or representing themselves well. I, I have a, a friend, my friend, Andrew Finn, it was one of the first episodes on this podcast and he is a buyer of small businesses. He calls them like, give me all the grimy ATMs I can find. They're, they're on the smaller side of, you know, in the, in the business brokerage world. But he always says like, he, he's wary of anything that's basically listed on a marketplace because he views finding something in an obscure source that no one else will find as a source of alpha. And, and that he's like less sure that he's going to get a good business when something is listed on a place like FE International, where it's a little bit more like an open auction process, where there's maybe hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people on your mailing list viewing every opportunity. And I'm, it's interesting to see that as a trade-off maybe of some minimum guarantee of quality. But like, what's your response to, to that sort of line of thinking or that type of buyer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think firstly, you can do it in lots of different ways. There are lots of different ways to create alpha. You don't necessarily think it's a bit of a oversimplification to think that the only way you make money on a deal is on the way in. Like, yes, that is probably the most common way if you can buy essentially a mispriced asset in a space which is lacks transparency or whatever that, that might be. Fundamentally, like what we do, we've tried to educate. I mean, part of the reason I come on podcasts, for example, try and educate people as to what their businesses are worth and how to approach it. I say generally a lot of buyers. So the flip side of that is a lot of buyers with capital will only buy through M&A firms because firstly, it's a quicker process. You're dealing with, you know, that a hundred percent or essentially a hundred percent of sellers we're representing are motivated to sell, you know, because we are representing them that they have realistic expectations around valuation. We're very realistic with people. We don't say, Hey, your business is worth $10 million. If it's actually worth five, it's just a waste of a waste of everybody's time. And like I said, we only make money for itself. So we have no incentive to lie. You'll save significant time in due diligence because we've already done a lot of the audit work. So you're going to have way fewer deals that completely fall through. That said, if you're an expert buyer and you're good at negotiating and persuading people to sell their business to you, and you're happy dealing with a bunch of mess, which you're going to get buying businesses privately and small, that business model can work. But that, that's definitely not for the average person. If you have a million dollars and you want to uh, buy a business, you should almost definitely buy it where it's been professionally represented. I would say that would be the kind of equivalent. Again, I don't know much about real estate, but that'd be the equivalent of in real estate, you have a million dollars 
you buy a, I don't know, a duplex in Austin, that's probably quite a good investment in the current market. Or do you buy, represented by Cushman Wakefield, or like a, a well-known real estate company? Or do you go um, and buy a foreclosure on Zillow for a million dollars in wherever? It's, it's probably a terrible idea if you don't know what you're doing. So exactly the same in this industry. And I think the other way I look at it philosophically, because I personally basically only invest in professionally represented businesses. So versus your friend, he would probably say I overpay in 100% of transactions or close to 100%. But there's a, a time value in there. And also getting a good deal or business is going to make you money. The entry price is not the only important thing in there. Arguably, if you can buy, arguably the best businesses are represented by M&A firms and the best businesses, if they have the ability to, to grow or you, you've already identified something that can double that business within six months, which is very common, is that necessarily a bad deal versus shopping around for six months, paying 20% less than I just paid I closed my deal six months ago because I bought through an M&A firm. I've already deployed my capital. I'm moving on. Yes, maybe I had to pay a bit more because it was a competitive process, but I also own a fundamentally better business. So yeah, there's lots of different ways to look at it, but I'd say fundamentally a good deal is not necessarily paying the least amount of money up front. Yeah, it's an interesting trade-off on you know accepting a higher quality floor maybe paying more for the asset but paying less in in due diligence or effort or uncertainty or um the work that you have to do to professionalize the business that hasn't been professionalized already it, it reminds me a little bit as you were talking of the you know the, the debate between buffett and munger like a quality business at a fair price is better than a fair business at a quality price so exactly i yeah. think that's kind of that's my fundamental view and i'd say that's definitely to my point earlier, that's definitely changed. If you asked me 10 years ago, I would say, no, absolutely. The only way to do it is get a good deal on the way in. But that's because I was primarily like on the buy side and that's what I was doing. And, I, and my time was essentially worth nothing. Like if I, could pay my, if I could pay my rent and feed myself that month, that was an achievement. So it's, I have, a, I guess, a different philosophy now. And also, depending on how much capital you're deploying, if you're deploying millions on behalf of yourselves or investors, I think the number one aim is capital preservation. So don't lose money. If you buy a business and it only grows 15% a year for 10 years, yes, maybe the guy who bought the business 30% below market value is going to do better. But there's also, if you run, if you run scenario analysis, the, the guy growing the business 15% year on year for 10 years is going to win in a significant number of those times. Yes, there will be the time where the other guy doubles the business every year for 10 years, but not, not, they're also going to have scenarios where they go to zero. So I think part of it is kind of my, my adversity to risk has changed as I've become more fortunate in my financial position. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting, like it's an underrated piece of the puzzle. I think people sort of stand fa fast and like, you know, draw their sword to defend their strategy no matter where their point is in life and forget to contextualize it in the sort of what their time is worth to them at the particular stage like what is the alternative you know the batna of their incremental hour how much capital do they have to risk 
which is a huge consideration for you know all of these all of these strategies. So, what is the you know if, if I was sitting with two prospectuses on my desk and one was from you know unaudited shady uh, you know amateurish let's just say business broker versus F- an FE International prospectus, they might look the same to me if I was uninitiated and and didn't know. So, so what is the work you know sort of that differentiates? an audited, guaranteed, sort of like well-processed prospectus from something that an amateur has whipped up to, to somebody who doesn't see behind the scenes? Yeah, so firstly, assuming it's well done, firstly, there are no guarantees. So yes, we do the work, but we're not, you're not getting a, a stamp of guarantee from us saying you buy this business. We hundred percent guarantee all of this is accurate. Fair. Sorry, we poor, can't poor choice that. of words on my part. <laughs> no, it, but no, but it's, it's, a, it's an important distinction because I'd be lying if I said we guarantee it. It's, it's not what we can do. We go through and we verify. And the reason we want to do that is ultimately we want buyers and sellers to do well. If buyers buy a business and it's misrepresented and they don't notice and they lose their money, that's not good for us. That's not good for the industry. We haven't been around 12 years by selling businesses which suck and are misrepresented. Um, on the outside, if you just compared those two perspectives, you probably wouldn't actually notice the difference because the majority of audit work is done behind the scenes. So if a cost line says they spend $10,000 on X and the other perspective says $10,000 on X, probably the fundamental difference is we have verified that they've actually spent $10,000 on X and the, the worst broker has almost definitely not done that. At, at best, they've taken the seller's word for it. And what we find in almost all cases when we do our financial audit, I would say in almost 100%, so not quite, but almost 100%, the financials we're given up front by sellers do not end up being the actual financials we end up with. And it's, there's, there's a trade-off between were they misrepresenting intentionally? If they were, we drop them immediately. Were they, I mean, accounting and business is complicated. It's not always that simple. So sometimes, particularly in like e-commerce businesses, for example, like the cogs were like, how much does it cost you to buy this? And they're like, I don't know. 10 cents, but then you actually look at it and it's like, okay, well, it actually costs them 11 cents for the last six months because I don't know, shipping costs have gone up or whatever it, whatever it might be. So also, yeah. So a big part of what we do is kind of getting the sellers to understand their own numbers. It's not just taking what they, what they tell us and being like, cool. We asked them, we got them to sign off saying, I verify this is accurate. So the only way you're ever really going to know is when you get into due diligence and you start verifying the numbers. Or, I mean, the obvious way usually, and I'd say most bad brokers will do this, they will make sentences or claims which are conflicting within the same document. So they'll say, I don't know, like, it's a growing business. And then you look at the P&L, it's clearly not a growing business. Or they'll say, I I, I don't know, they'll say something like, the the seller's devoted his life to building this business. And then how many hours a week do you work? Two. Like the the, the things (laughs) that are conflicting. Ultimately, though, the, the short answer is it's difficult until you get to actual due diligence and you start seeing bank statements. And I would say you have to be very disciplined because what the average person who's misrepresenting will make up an excuse why they can't send you something. It's like, oh, my, I, I closed my bank account. I don't have access to bank statements or, oh, like I, my credit card provider won't give me this or, oh, actually, like my friend paid for this service so I don't have access. So you do have to be very disciplined. For us, we will 
almost never and it, it would have to get signed off by me if we're making some form of exception about something like that for whatever it might be but the average person misrepresenting obviously they know what they are doing they will do it in such a way that you would not know unless you've done it like we have 1200 times like we know when people are lying because they'll be like oh this bank does not have an online login and we know it does because we have other clients who have or you call the bank and you check there are lots of different ways to get around things like that but say yeah outside you will not tell the two perspectives are different the worst brokers will generally have conflicting information in there but doesn't necessarily mean it's misrepresented it's usually just that the broker is not very good and that that also does not necessarily mean the business is bad a lot of good businesses hire bad brokers and a lot of bad businesses hire good brokers so sure you can look at it lots of different ways well it feels a little like you know bowling with bumpers to be have somebody who is a professional auditor kind of working with you on this process because i know like navigating that yourself and checking every assumption and drilling down and asking for every piece of information that might be hiding something as you know i have friends who have gone through this as as business buyers and it's a harrowing process of of <laughs> discovery and persistence and just trying to stay organized and look under every stone and you know find every risk that's it's it's hard work so i you know i don't begrudge you the the service that you provide at all that seems very necessary and actually you know thinking through this it's like especially for an, a first time buyer i can really imagine a lot of value coming from having someone kind of hold your hand through experiencing a lot of these things and showing off what you can do and shopping in a marketplace of you know with a certain quality floor to it there's a lot to be said for that yeah i definitely think it helps as a first time buyer but like i said conversely if you have a lot of capital to deploy and you need to buy one business month for the rest of the year then that can also help simplify your job so i guess there are advantages throughout the process fundamentally like my philosophy since day one of the business is I want the overall industry, and this is this this was essential starting out when the industry was tiny. I needed the industry to grow. The only way the industry grows is if legitimate transactions happen, where sellers get rich and buyers also get rich and do well. Because those the people who have their first exit selling online business, what do they do with their money? No, they don't go buy real estate. They go buy another business, or they go do some angel investing, or they do some venture investing, or they become an LP in a fund. So a, a lot of the people we work with, they've come full circle. Maybe they're not launching another business from scratch, but you can be pretty sure they're not leaving the industry. Maybe they become mentors. Maybe they launch a coaching business, but they're, they're all staying in the ecosystem and kind of being helpful. People don't generally don't make their fortune and leave an industry entirely. Yeah. After, after all that hard-earned wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of hard-earned wisdom, I imagine that across these 1,200 transactions, there is a treasure trove of data inside FE International. And from my perspective as a, you know, just a, a voyeur, I only see basically PDF versions of this. Is there like a massive database of structured data that gives you this God's eye view of like marketplaces and industry and valuations and how it kind of helps you like screen out things? Like, are you looking at not different data, but differently contextualized data internally, or when you kind of, as an expert, get to go go shop in this industry. For for sure, I'd say on. So, firstly, when we put together valuations, 
we put so in our prospectus, you might see from a financial perspective, you probably see a snapshot of one tab of an Excel spreadsheet, essentially. It, in reality, going into that deal behind the scenes is probably 40 or 50 tabs of analysis to then simplify it and show it in a simple way. But there's tons of analysis that's gone in behind the scenes. We track literally everything, all the data on everything. So when we value a business, we're, I guess, fortunate because we've done so many deals, we have a comp for everything or multiple comps. So we can value very accurately, particularly businesses we've sold before or similar before, we can be very confident in the accuracy of our valuation. And we pull in all of that data so we can spot trends. Um, we can make theories about what, what buyers are willing to pay for, what they're not willing to pay for. We can be very objective in our approach. We don't just look at a business and say, oh, that, that looks cool. I think someone will buy it. I read an article that said businesses are selling for this. Let's just choose that number. It's all modeled out. There is an element of, so there's a lot of science. There's definitely an element of art. I would say it's 80% science, 20% art when it comes to valuation, because there is an element of this looks like a good business. We haven't sold something exactly like this before, but we know buyers will like it. Or actually, you know what? This looks like a good business, but there's actually a fundamental problem. We shouldn't take it on even though it seems objectively like we should, which I mean, ultimately is what we're, I guess, ultimately talking about like alpha. That's how I make my money is making a good judgment call on what we can sell and what we can't sell. If we just took on everything that looks good, then we almost definitely would not have a, have a business. Yeah. So tons of data to answer your question. What you see in the prospectus is a very summarized version of all the analysis we've done, but there's always a trade-off between giving too much analysis and not enough. So we keep the prospectus to a snapshot. But then if you ask our team, oh, hey, do you have a breakdown of like cogs by product? We can send that to you. We will probably not send you what the actual product is or what the supplier name is, but we might say product one, 10 cents, product two, 15 cents, that, that kind of thing. So it's all there. You just don't see it as a buyer. Super interesting. So it sounds like you're pretty opinionated about the valuations of these businesses is is that a tough conversation with sellers who maybe come in with uh, different notions of what their what their business should be going for? There's lots of like tough conversations, but ultimately we're always honest with people. And I think fundamentally, because we only get paid if a business sells, we have no incentive to lie or misrepresent what we think a business is worth. Does that mean we're right 100% of the time? Absolutely not. But we can be as accurate as we can. And then when we need to be optimistic, we then make a judgment call. So if we say, hey, look, a business, we think this business is worth 10 million and the seller's like, I really want 11 and we think it's a good business, we'll, we'll probably have a go. If we say it's worth 10 million and they're like, no, I need 25, then we're not, we're not going to take it on. So we almost never take on, oh, sorry, we never take on businesses where we think the valuation is unrealistic. I'd say the conversations have got not necessarily easier, but as we've, the industry's got bigger, the average person in the space has got more knowledgeable. I'd say there's definitely less surprise conversations where people are like, oh my God, I was absolutely not aware that's what the market was like at the moment. I thought everyone was paying 20 times revenue for every business. I mean, there's definitely still some of that, but I'd say on average, the average person today is better educated around valuations than they were 10 years ago. And 
we're always honest. We'll, because I, I always say this, the team is always kind of maintain discipline within the team. The, the team will often get frustrated when another broker or M&A firm will list the business that we were speaking to, but they'll list it at double our valuation. And my point to the team is, did we get the valuation wrong? Probably not. Are they just being overly optimistic and will the business not sell? And will they then call us in six months? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what will happen. So we're very, I mean, we've been doing this a very long time. So kind of, we've seen it all before at this stage and happy to be disciplined and like wait out. Yeah. Is, I don't know if this is uh, fair to ask you on the spot or if you're comfortable sharing, but it, would you be able to kind of ballpark multiples for maybe like content businesses, SaaS businesses and e-com? In your main three categories? Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of at a high level, yes, at the moment in terms of multiples, and this is very broad, just an indication, because uh, I'd say discussing how valuations work is probably um, another couple of hours on a, on a podcast <laughs> discussing. Um, fundamentally, if we break it into our three headline business models, which is SaaS, content, e- e-commerce, yes, there are lots of sub-business models within that. Yes, we sell some businesses which are hybrid. Yes, we sometimes sell service businesses which do not exactly fit within the exact business model, but they're very close. SaaS businesses are generally the highest of the three. Usually we see multiples anywhere from four to 10 times annual SDE. So annual SDE is, for simplicity's sake, is essentially net profit of the business, not taking into account what the sellers compensate themselves. Content businesses, anywhere from 2.5 to, to four times annual. And then e-commerce businesses, anywhere from 2.5 times to about five times annual. Again, that's very broad. That's our current data. In 12 months time, that'll probably be different. 12 months ago, that was also different as well. But I'd say very broad. That's what businesses are selling for. Some will sell for more. But there are a lot that will sell for less. Look, businesses we would not take on, but just because the average business we represent and sell falls within that multiple, that does not mean that average business is in that because arguably we take on the upper threshold of like good businesses. So probably not the absolute best businesses because the absolute best businesses either do not get sold or they get bought privately for way above market. Do not sell the absolute worst businesses because they're not making any money. We sell like kind of, let's call it the, the top 20% of businesses, yep. not including the, the top 0.1%. <laughs> Upper um, middle class. Whereas yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. Whereas the, I guess, average business, I guess by the very definition of average, is probably not in that. Yeah. Th- this When I first learned th- this combination of things, there's like kind of two concepts in that explanation that... I remember understanding maybe for the first time when Brent Bishore explained them to me and both of them sort of it opened my worldview and seeing like, oh, you can take a business that's earning a hundred grand a year or a million dollars a year and the quality of that revenue and the durability of the business, like this is where moats get quantified in, in the multiple that they earn at sale. So if you own a business your whole life and you never sell it, it doesn't matter what the multiple might be if you're earning a million bucks a year. If you go to sell that business, all of a sudden it matters a lot whether you get a 3x multiple for your million dollar business, which means you sell the business for $3 million, or whether it's a 10x multiple and you sell a business for $10 million. So that was a huge kind of like, you know, if you're starting from zero and you're looking at these multiples, you're like, 
well, I was going to flip a coin and either start a content business or a SaaS business. You're like, oh shit, well, I'm going to start a SaaS business because I can sell it for way more. It's a higher quality revenue. It's a more durable moat. And the other was seller earnings or seller discretionary earnings, which is like, for your, your definition, like net profit plus what the seller is pulling out of the business, which in a lot of these businesses, and I, I tried to write a blog post about this, like proximity to profits. A lot of these small businesses, yeah, there's a hundred grand in net profit, but there's also 200 more grand where the seller is paying themselves rent. They're paying the, they're covering their vehicle expense. They're covering their home office and the net sort of benefit to the owner of the business is maybe $300,000 instead of that pure hundred thousand that comes out as a net profit. And so the process of like adding all of that back in to valuing the business is really, it's a gray area, but it's a really interesting sort of set of judgment calls. And I'm sure your accounting teams do a lot of this work to sort out what's a fair claim and what's not. And I don't know, the, understanding that all for the first time was really opened my eyes to a lot of things about the business world. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, there's definitely a lot to learn. And like the conversation around what's a valid add back and how do you calculate SDE is a ongoing debate and there's no perfect answer. And one thing I would say, I know this is not a question, but I'm going to give an unsolicited answer. Just because multiples are higher for a SaaS business, because people ask me this all the time, does not mean you should launch a SaaS business. If you are, to my earlier example, the mum blogger who is a great cook, you should write your, about your recipes and people will read about your recipes and that will make you money. So you should definitely focus on like what you're good at. And also, while multiples for a SaaS business are higher than, say, a content or an e-commerce business, arguably it can take longer to get off the ground and, and start. I, so this is one way I, I position it, and I'm not arguing in favor of any of the particular business models, because it really depends on what you're good at and what you like. Um, I've seen far more businesses in the e-commerce space get to a million dollars revenue in a year than I have seen SaaS businesses get to a million dollars in a year, which is, I would say in SaaS, it's almost never, and in e-commerce, it's reasonably common. So yeah, there's not necessarily, do not pick a business model because the current multiples are higher. Um, so while I believe like long-term because SaaS has that recurring flow of income, yes, those businesses will probably always be valued more than content and e-commerce. That like if you're starting a business today, you're not selling it for three years, five years, ten years. So like you shouldn't really be looking at current valuations. Maybe like the intrinsic parts of the business model that will not change. Mm -hmm. Is there um is there a way to get a price while we're talking about valuations on a on a business without like taking a ton of time committing to the sale process? Is there like a, a Zestimate for businesses or should you, is, is what we're talking about the multiples kind of like as close as you can get? Yeah. So one, you definitely can't get a Zestimate. <laughs> uh, again, I'm not in the real estate. So you cannot get a Zestimate. There are definitely people that tell you you can get a Zestimate. There are definitely like automated valuations you can get, but automated valuations for a, a business, I'd say do more harm than good because Either they're going to give you a really broad range or they're going to give you an unrealistic range. Or I guess there's also a possibility sometimes they'll be correct. But what if the automated valuation tool tells you your business is worth a third of what it's actually worth? Or what if it tells you it's worth 10 times more than it's actually worth? That like In neither situation is that good information to have. I mean, one thing we do fundamentally as a core of our services, we offer free valuations to anyone who has a business we think think will be a fit. So you don't have to hire us or pay us to do evaluation. I guess that's kind of our our hook essentially. And because we're 
it's kind of like a getting to know you process. Like we want to make sure the business is a fit and we can actually sell it. And equally sellers want to kind of understand how we work, what we analyze and go from there. That was a perfect alley-oop that I didn't even know I was throwing. That's a great service. And it makes total sense because I imagine there's people who, I mean, it's kind of also an answer to the question that I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is like, how, if I want to be planning to sell my business eventually, like, how do I preserve that option? How do I optimize? How do I just avoid the dead ends that cut that option off for me in the future? So starting a relationship maybe now and understanding some of the inputs to that valuation is the right approach. Exactly. That, that's really my main tip is like start like M&A firms like us. I mean, we've been in business 12 years. That does not mean that every single year, the people we do business with, we met in that year. The vast majority of people we, we're working with today are people we met five years ago. So it's never too early to start a conversation. And to my point earlier, like we'll be super honest and direct if it's not a fit for us. If you come to us with a restaurant and you say, Hey, can you value it? No, we can't. Can we recommend somebody can value it? Probably not either because we just don't know that space. And I don't pretend to know that space. If you have a SaaS business and you want to get a valuation, we can value it and it will be accurate. Okay. Do, do you have a sense, uh, you mentioned something earlier that, that, that very top, you know, 0.01 or 0.1% of businesses sort of get done quietly for above market valuations. And then the bottom end of businesses are just not probably sellable at all or should are just in the process of going out of business. Do you have a sense of like what percent of deals get listed on you know a marketplace or with a firm publicly versus just get done quietly? Like, is that closer to 50-50? Is it closer to 90-10 or 10-90? Like, I, I wouldn't even know how to sort of guess at, at what that breakdown is. Yeah, to be completely honest, it's very hard to know because one thing I've learned is what people tell you and what actually happened are not usually that accurate. <laughs> so a lot of people say, oh, I had a had an exit, but an exit could have been like they assigned it to someone for a dollar. To your point about nexus of contracts, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot of people will say, and I also, obviously, I have a very privileged seat. I, I know a lot of private details about people's lives. A lot of people that will tell you that you've had an amazing exit I know their exit was actually relatively small and people who you never hear from ever or might say, oh yeah, I sold a small business, have $20 million in their checking account. Whereas the person you think is the famous guy on social media of 150,000 followers who has on their bio three exits, those exits might have totaled like $40,000. So while I'm not belittling, like any exit is a good exit essentially, but it's, I would say it's very hard to get the reality of private exits, because in my experience, almost everyone lies or will slightly change what really happened. And things like marketplaces, for example, where I guess you could argue that's like a privately done deal rather than a represented deal. The way they'll often work is if someone like removes their business from the marketplace, they're like, oh, it's sold. So if they had it listed for $10 million and then they remove it or they actually sell it through a broker or something like that separately, it then gets removed and the marketplace is like, wow, we did a $10 million deal. But the reality is they didn't. And did it actually happen for 10 million or did it actually happen for 2 million? Who knows? I would say they might get, if I were to guess, I would say it's probably about 50-50. Deals done privately, deals done um, through M&A firms. And then I would say, or, or business brokers, or what, I mean, there are lots of different categories depending on how big a business is. I would say as businesses get bigger, they're much more likely to have had professional representation 
the smaller deals more likely to have got done privately. Uh, the way I, I look at it internally is anything below marketplaces have a place in the industry for businesses, but I'd say they're really only good below about $100,000 in valuation where businesses relatively lack complex, lack complexity, don't need a huge amount of legal deal structuring, buyers are paying cash. As deals get bigger than that and more complex, you need professional representation. So do people try to do it themselves to save, save on the commission? Yes, but it's exactly the same as like people making a million a year who try to do their taxes with TurboTax. Can you do it? Yes. Did you save some money? Yes. Is it a good idea? No, because you probably actually lost money in deductions. You should be you should be thinking about return on headache, not 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 saving every penny by that point. So, uh, just to, uh, as we kind of wind up here, I, I'm curious a little about the kind of post sale transition process. Like, what what is the work required to actually hand over the keys between some of these businesses? I imagine that's not a small amount of work, but I also imagine it's a lot easier with a SaaS business than, you know, a car wash, but, but maybe I'm wrong. And how involved is, is FE in that, that piece of the stage? I'd say it depends. So firstly, we're as involved as the buyer and seller want us to be. At the very least, we are ensured that the legal element works properly. So you were buying X, that includes a list of 20 assets. Here's a list of 20 assets and like their usernames and passwords or whatever it might be. So we make sure that the Legally, the transaction is consummated and there's not a situation where something's got forgotten or, or missed out. From like technical side of the transfer, really depends on the business and the buyer. Like if you're a first-time buyer and the seller is working full-time on the business, then the transfer is probably going to take quite a long time because the buyer's going to have to learn the business. The seller's super involved. There's probably a bunch of processes they haven't written down. Uh, whereas the flip side could be, super experienced buyer who has a portfolio of 10 companies in that exact industry and the kind of sellers relatively hands off and the, the handover could literally be like, here's the usernames and passwords. We'll have a call in a, in like a month just to make sure we're doing everything properly. So a, a real mix, but I'd say we've kind of got the time and hassle down to a minimum at this stage with our process. It's very much still part of our service. We, we're not just like, our job is not just to get the contract signed. Our job is to make sure the business is transferred because with like buying, and this is what a lot of people don't realize when you're buying a business, the most important time period is the first three months. If you take it over and you don't, you, you mess, something in the, uh, mess something up in the transfer or you forget about something or you don't get trained properly, you're probably not going to do very well with that business. So the initial handover and training is the most important part of the process. So from a long-term success. So we're very hands-on there. It really depends on the, the, the business in terms of how hard it is to take over. We'll do a, lot, a reasonable amount of prep with sellers in advance. So we'll ask them how well documented their code is, their processes are, their like suppliers and things like that. And then we'll make them document it throughout the process. So when the sale actually happens, they're in a good spot. I, I seriously could ask you questions all day. This is endlessly fascinating to me. I, I have one more that I, I'm deathly curious about, and then maybe we'll just have to do this again because we're we're running out of time for my infinite curiosity and limited time, and your, yours as well. What is the like? How much do you know about how successful your your buyer alumni are? Like, you know, whether personally or professionally, like 
is that part of the pitch on the buyer side is like, you know, 80% of our buyers have become successful. Can you not speak to that at all? Like it, neither would surprise me, but I guess I'm, I'm curious how much. We de- yeah, we definitely track it. I'd say we don't pitch it as a sales pitch because ultimately we're representing the seller. We can't also represent the buyer. While we want to present ourselves as legitimate, what we're selling is not our 80% of buyers are successful because ultimately buyer success doesn't, and this is the, the dirty secret no one will tell you, doesn't really come down to the business you're buying. It comes down to how competent the person buying the business is. Like, like I, I a good operator can run most businesses successfully, even if the business is not that great. And a bad operator is going to run a fantastic business into the ground, regardless of what happens. So we don't, we don't pitch the like percentages of success because there's too many variables to go into it. I say anecdotally, we have a lot of, a lot of buyers who started out relatively small and they've built huge portfolios now and they've now raised investor capital and they've done it outside. A lot of people just buy one business. And they're quite happy making a, a nice living, working five hours a week, hanging out with their kind of family and, and, and kids or whatever it, it might be. So there's a, and like what defines success? Is it, is it growth? There are lots of people out there who just want to make a living. They, they don't want to be making millions a year. They just want to have time. And it's kind of a, always a trade off of time versus kind of return. So no, we do not track it in a huge amount of detail, but we do at the same time track repeat business we want to make sure buyers come back but there are lots of re- a buyer could do it like it's a bit of a catch 22 if a buyer does really well they're never going to come back because they don't need to because they've turned their 10 million dollar acquisition into a billion dollars if they do really badly they're obviously not going to come back either it's the ones in the middle that are most likely to come back the guys buying businesses like i said where they have 15% annual return on a good bit. You can do that every single year, raise more money every single year, and it will compound quite nicely. They're the ones who who come back and they're the ones, not, not the ones we care about, that's the wrong word, but they're the ones we focus on making sure they come back. Beautiful. Okay. Well, that is a wonderful overview, I think, of both things. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and being so candid and sharing everything that you know. So where, where would you recommend anybody who's still got some curiosity to go, to go follow up and dive deeper. Yeah. So say like on our FE website, we have a lot of content we've published over the years, a lot of written content, primarily other podcasts I've been on where we might've discussed different topics. You can find them kind of, as you navigate through our site, we regularly publish like white papers with more data, which is the kind of thing you might be interested in. Some people just want to read about like success stories. We have a real mix and a bit of everything. And then if you want to contact us, like, Kind of obvious how you do it on our website, on social media. I'm like pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. They're probably the three easiest ways to get hold of me. Or you can always email as well and it will get picked up as well. Okay. Thank you so much, Thomas, for taking the time. It was wonderful to meet you and learn a little bit about all the hard work behind the prospectuses that have taught me so much. Uh, I, I hope to do a transaction with you at some point in the future, but you, you give yeah, me a lot to me, think about. Me too. Well, Well, thanks very much for the discussion. It's been good. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. I learned a ton from Thomas and I hope you did too. If you want to keep digging into similar topics, you will really enjoy my episodes with Andrew Finn. It was an episode from very early on, but Andrew is the friend I mentioned in this episode. 
He is a buyer of these small businesses and talks really in depth about the shopping process, the valuation process, integrating those businesses, managing them, scaling them, and growing them. It's a very interesting episode, and I learned a lot from Andrew. Also in this vein, my episode with Cody Sanchez. Cody owns, I think, 26 businesses and equity in another couple dozen. She really talks about how to acquire some of these, you know, quote unquote, boring businesses, a little less tech focused than this one, but really interesting insights about how to sort of scale up one of these strategies and apply it consistently over time. Again, thank you to our sponsor, founderspodcast.com. You can support the show by supporting them or by investing with me in Rolling Fun. Links to both are in the show notes. Check out my website, ejorgensen.com. And if you're looking for a free way to support the show, please leave a very quick review for the show or text this friend to text this episode to a friend or coworker who you think would enjoy it. I really appreciate you listening. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.